Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. There comes a time in the relationship of every parent and child in which a wise parent tells the child, it's time to grow up. Well, that's precisely what the Apostle Paul does in his letter to the Hebrews now in chapter 5, beginning in the 11th verse, reading through chapter 6, verse 3. Of whom, that is concerning Melchizedek that he's just mentioned in verse 10, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth unto them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. We're in the main section of the Hebrew letter that began in chapter 4, verse 14. It continues all the way to chapter 10, verse 18. And the main theme of this letter, which is developed in this dominant section, is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews is written as a sermon. And of course, most preachers have a theme and a main point. Paul's main point, again, is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. But if you've listened to very many sermons, you know that preachers like to chase rabbits. They uh, sometimes develop side points, peripheral matters. I do that. I try to stay on task as much as possible and drive to the main point of the sermon, but uh, inevitably, we chase rabbits. Now, I'm not going to accuse the Apostle Paul of chasing a rabbit here, but what we have in this section, beginning in chapter 5, verse 11, is what we might call a pastoral parenthesis, in which as a pastor, he's preaching a sermon, he makes an application that is necessary to the people. He challenges the Hebrews like a parent might challenge a teenager, and basically what he says in this passage is, it's time to grow up. Notice he mentions Melchizedek in verse 10. Now, Melchizedek is a very mysterious character, an interesting character, and he's already talked about him previously in this letter. He mentions him now again in chapter 5, verse 10, that Jesus is called of God a high priest, not after the order of Aaron, like the Old Testament priest, but after the order of Melchizedek that predates the Aaronic priesthood. Melchizedek, you'll read about in the 14th chapter of Genesis. He met Abraham returning from the battle in the Valley of Salt in which he went to rescue Lot. You never read about him before then nor after then. And the apostle says, I would like to talk to you about Melchizedek, for Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But he said, I would like to say many things about him, but 
It's hard to be uttered. I can't tell you what I want to tell you because you are dull of hearing. And he goes on to say, you're still in a state of spiritual immaturity. Therefore, he diverts into this section that goes all the way to the end of chapter 6, in which he chases a rabbit, a pastoral parenthesis, if you please. He talks about the importance of growing up towards spiritual maturity. Now, age is not necessarily the same thing as maturity. Just because a person is advanced in age does not mean that he or she is mature. Age is a quantity of time. But maturity is a quality of experience. Perhaps you've heard about uh, the pop psychological syndrome that is called the Peter Pan syndrome. It's not a, an official diagnosis, but in modern society, it is not uncommon to uh, see grown people, adults physically and in terms of age, who yet are very immature in their thinking and in their attitudes and in their entire approach to life, just like Peter Pan. You may remember that the fictional character Peter Pan was the young man who said, I just always want to be a little boy. I never want to grow up. May I say we have a lot of folks that are adults in terms of years in the modern world that still want to play games all the time and just don't want to grow up. And not only is that a social problem, but in the Hebrew case, and may I say in the case of the modern Christian, it's a spiritual problem. The big problem that we should be concerned about is not so much personal maturity in society as much as we should be spiritual immaturity in the church. I wonder if you've ever been around somebody and you thought, I think I've made some progress in the Christian life but you're around somebody that is many years your senior as far as their level of spiritual maturity is concerned. I've been around preachers before that were just so much more advanced than I was. And I see that in them, and I thought, well, I thought that I had arrived, but I see a steadiness and a consistency and a wisdom about them that I lack, and I want to be more like that. And that's what the apostle is talking about here in this passage. He says, I would like to talk to you about this subject, Melchizedek, but I can't say anything because you wouldn't be able to receive it right now any more than a little child might understand a lesson on calculus or even on algebra. You know, a little child needs to be fed milk and pablum, if I can mix my metaphors. Instead of strong meat, as he says in this passage, for a child's palate and system is not capable of digesting what an adult can digest, and so it's true spiritually speaking. So let's talk first about the problem that faced the Hebrews, and you see that in verses 11 through 13. The problem is that their spiritual growth had been stunted. Their development had stagnated. They had started well, but they had become dull of hearing, and he says they were like babes and not those of full age or of mature years. Now, I think it's helpful for each one of us from time to time to ask ourselves, am I growing? The Bible teaches the importance of self-examination. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. We are to constantly think about our lives in terms of the scriptures. Am I making progress? You know, somebody says, Brother Mike, Jesus loves me, this I know, and that's all you need to know. I understand when people say that. 
I've heard preachers make the point that you really never graduate beyond Jesus loves me, this I know. I understand what they're saying. That certainly is essential. That's crucial. That's central. But may I say there's a place for the whole counsel of God. And if you're still reading the 23rd Psalm, you say, well, I started learning the 23rd Psalm and that's where I go every time I open my Bible. Or if you're still reading only John 3.16 or Romans 8.29 and 30, if you're still just picking out pet verses, may I say there's much more land to be possessed and each one of us should be interested in growing to be as strong and mature as possible, as Christ-like as possible, to understand more and more. And I have to tell you as a pastor, I've seen growth in our congregation. I've not seen the numerical growth that I would like to see in our church body. I pray that God would be pleased to give the increase, that he would grant us new converts, and that there would be an ingathering of baptisms and more people coming in. Let's pray together to that end. Would you join me in that? But my beloved, may I say that if we had numerical growth without the spiritual growth, then we wouldn't be able to handle it. Spiritual growth is what's most important. And I've seen that in your lives. I've seen that you're able to tolerate more and more of a consistent diet of Scripture. I've seen that you're stronger in your ability to handle burdens and pressures. I'm encouraged by what I see in our congregation so far as spiritual development is concerned. But may I say that in a real sense, we've just begun on this journey. And there's room for progress in each of our lives. And I want to encourage you to think in terms of spiritual maturity in your life. Are you more consistent today than you were five years ago? Are you more habitual? Do you read your Bible more? Are you praying on a more consistent basis, more devoutly? Now, those are hard questions, and they're uncomfortable questions, because inevitably we see areas of failure in each of our lives. But what I'm saying is healthy Christian thinking involves thinking in terms of this whole concept of growth in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. And the Hebrews were not growing like they should. In fact, not only were they not progressing, but they were actually digressing. As he says in verse 12, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again the very first principles of the oracles of God. And did you know that it's possible that if we don't grow, we will actually decline? You know, a person who is no longer healthy actually begins to lose body mass. Their health not only stagnates, but it actually deteriorates. And the same is true with our understanding of the Bible and our ability to apply it and implement its principles in our daily lives. That if we're not progressing... We are, in fact, digressing, and it's possible to come to the point where you need to be reminded of the ABCs, the first principles of the oracles of God. The Greek word there literally means the simplest elements of the Christian faith, or the ABCs in the one, two, threes. Now, many of you are adults here, and others are school-aged children. Uh, you've been in school for a few years, no doubt, and... Uh, You've had your education if you're a grown-up. And you say, Brother Mike, I would be insulted if you asked me to sing the ABC song. <laughs> or if you asked me to count to ten. Because of course I can do that. Everybody can do that. But you see, that's 
really what the apostle is saying to these Hebrews that you need to go back and learn your ABCs again. The first principles, the simplest elements, the Greek word again literally means the simplest elements of the Christian faith. He says you need to go back to kindergarten because you've lost focus on what it all means and you're not making any progress. Now that's a problem. It was a problem among this Hebrew community and uh, the Apostle Paul says it needs to change. Now I want to say that the problem that they faced is not the absence of spiritual life, but it's the lack of spiritual growth. Obviously, they had spiritual life. They were children of God. The subject under consideration is not regeneration, but it's practical sanctification or growth in grace. Peter concludes his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, with this imperative, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now he's telling us to do that. Are you growing in grace? That means in Christian character. If you're a parent here today and you had a child that wasn't growing, wouldn't you be worried about that child? Wouldn't you want to go to the pediatrician and uh, ask the question, why is my child's growth stymied? Why is his growth stunted? Why is she not making any progress? Let's run some tests. Let's find some treatments. After we diagnose the cause of the problem, let's try to find a solution to this problem. Well, the Hebrews had stopped growing. And actually, again, they were digressing. And the apostle says, you need to learn the first principles. You need to grow in grace and in the knowledge. Not only growth in Christian character. I want to be more Christ-like. I hope you do as well. Don't you want to be more like Jesus in the way you think? Your attitudes, the way you talk, the way you conduct yourself, and your purpose and goal in life? I want to follow his footsteps. That's what discipleship really means. Walking in the footsteps of Jesus. He's our leader, and we are followers, disciples. So I want to grow in Christian character. Character is who you really are on the inside. Reputation is what people think of you. On the outside, you know, their opinion of you, but character is your true self, who you really are in the sight of God. I want to grow in Christian character. That means manifesting more and more of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. We sang about it just a moment ago. Purer in heart, oh God, help me to be. And somebody says, Brother Mike, I don't like that song. I think it should say, pure in heart, I already am. But purer in heart. That means that we've not reached the mark yet. We want to keep pressing forward, right? There's room for progress. There's a verse in the book of Joshua where Joshua said to the children of Israel after they came into the land of Canaan and possessed their different parcels of real estate. You know, the tribe of Simeon had this portion, and the tribe of Judah had this one, and the tribe of Gad and Dan and Ephraim and Manasseh had these portions. Joshua said, there remaineth much more land to be possessed. Once you've built your home, once you've put your roots down and said, okay, this is my, I've staked my claim. He says, don't get to just one point and say, I'm going to sit under my fig tree and just camp right here, and that's enough for me. I've learned Jesus loves me, this I know. I've learned Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved. I believe the old Baptists have the truth. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ is a simple community of regenerate believers. 
And Brother Mike, I believe in salvation by grace. Just give me that old-time religion, but don't ask me to think and to make any progress. Now, that's a mindset that is very popular today. And I suspect that it may have crept into some of our thinking as well here this morning. So, okay, I already know it all. The fact is, my beloved, if we ever meet somebody that is many years advanced in their experience than we are, we will see that in many respects, I'm a pygmy, a spiritual pygmy compared to these mature saints in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's why I like having some of these ministers come, you know, that come to preach for us. They're just so steady, so consistent. I've noticed in my life there's been a tendency to be on again, off again. You know, I'm on fire for the Lord, then I, my, I get cold. And then I'm excited again, then I seem to wander. Just fits and starts like a roller coaster. I want to be more even keeled. I want to be more consistent. I want to be more dependable over the long haul. I'm saying that that is a mark of maturity. A little child gets excited about birthdays and this county fair, you know, Christmas now, and they have moments of excitement, but in the ho-hum routines of life, it's hard to keep your zeal and enthusiasm going. But a mature person gets up every morning, they do the same things, they keep going, their steadiness, consistency. You see, here's the contrast that we're trying to develop this morning on a spiritual note, the difference between being immature and mature. For instance, Ephesians 4 verse 15 says that you be not like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Little children are quickly on the new bandwagon, you know, the latest fad. And I know that Christians are susceptible to movements and fads. You know, a new idea comes down the pike and somebody says, oh, I'm excited about this and I'm excited about that. Annual meeting time comes and oh, we're all excited. But the fifth Sunday in Neverwary comes and somebody says, oh, ho-hum, routine, it's just another boring service. Well, I'm saying that your real spiritual mental is proven in the warp and woof of daily life and the routines, the mundane routines of daily life. It's the Sunday by Sunday consistency that is crucial. And you say, well, it's just not as exciting to listen to you as it is to a preacher from a distant state. Somebody once asked the question, what makes a big preacher? And the answer was about 500 miles. <laughs> and you say, I understand. But my beloved, what we're doing here is important. We're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether you know it or not, we're not coming to church just to get our tank refueled. You say, okay, I got filled up last Sunday and I've gone out and spent it up this week. I've come back to get it refueled. The church is not primarily a gas station where you can refuel your tank. Now, it does that. I grant you. I know that that's a benefit of the church. I feel better after I've been to church. But I think of church life from week to week more like the building of a brick wall in which you lay a layer this week and you come back next week and you lay another layer on top of that and the next week you lay another layer. Instead of filling and consuming, it's keeping and adding on. It's growth. It's progress. And my beloved, may I say that as we preach the whole counsel of God, not just our pet verses, our favorite passages, but as we deal with some of these things that we wouldn't ordinarily think are real exciting, but yet are very important because they're in the Holy Scriptures, I believe there will be development, strengthening, growth, progress in your understanding, your ability to grasp what the Scriptures mean, what they're all about and to implement it, and there will be a greater level of spiritual maturity in each of our lives as individuals. 
Now that's what he's talking about. The problem of the Hebrews was they were not growing. Notice the first principles that he talks about here. Verse 12, he says, you have need to be taught again the first principles of the oracles of God. You see that word again in chapter 6, verse 1, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. What are the first principles? He lists six of them here. And may I suggest in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the six things he mentions are three groups of two. The first group of two is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That's the first group. Repentance and faith. That speaks of the first steps of discipleship. You know, when you first join the church, what you're doing is you're turning from the dead works of your former life Dead works because they really didn't accomplish that much. You're turning from that lifestyle and you're turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So repentance and faith. When a person comes down the aisle and says, I want to be baptized, what they're saying is I want to leave my old life in the water behind me and I want to rise to walk in newness of life to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are the first steps of discipleship. That's elementary, my dear Watson. Then he mentions baptism and the laying on of hands as the first principles. We know what baptism means, and notice he uses the plural in this verse of the doctrine of baptisms. Probably he has reference to all of the different forms of cleansing in the Old Testament. You know that they had hand washing before they made sacrifices, and they were taught to wash certain portions of the sacrifice that was going to be made. And so baptisms in the Old Testament in terms of the ceremonial cleansings, gospel baptism in water, Trinitarian baptism, that Jesus taught us to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The Bible also teaches the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism is an important doctrine, but when he speaks of baptisms and the laying on of hands, he's talking about what we might call the basic functions of church life. So first we have the basic first steps of discipleship, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. The second couplet in this list in Hebrews chapter 6 has to do with the basic functions of church life. Somebody says, what is your religion all about? Say, well, at my church we baptize in water and we believe in shaking people's hands, laying on of hands. I don't know exactly what is meant by the expression laying on of hands. In fact, if you read a dozen different writers in church history, you will find a dozen different opinions about what is involved in the laying on of hands. Some of our Baptist ancestors believed the laying on of hands was a church ordinance. I don't believe that. I believe there are only two ordinances or sacred ceremonies that the Lord's given to the church. Water baptism, believer's baptism, which is the ceremony of initiation. It's the entrance into the fellowship of the church. And then the observance of the Lord's Supper which is a ceremony of remembrance. And laying on of hands, of course, we know that when a person is ordained to office, a minister is ordained to preach the gospel, or a deacon is ordained to serve the local church, we know that the presbytery lays on hands, which is a symbolic act of saying we endorse you. There's not any actual magic that takes place through my hands where some kind of electrical charge flows into that person. It's, it's a symbolic act of saying, I approve of you. You know, when other preachers that are already ordained to lay hands on a new man that the church believes has a gift to preach, and he's shown himself to be qualified, both in terms of his moral character 
and his theological skill to teach the word of God. And the presbytery lays hands on what they're saying is, I endorse you. I give you my blessing. It's a symbolic act. I wonder, though, if this expression, laying on of hands, is a euphemism for interpersonal fellowship in the church. You know, when we, the close of our service, what do we do? I give an invitation for anyone who wants to join the church, new members, to come forward, and then we file around and we do what? We shake hands, we embrace each other, we touch each other. There's contact in a very holy and godly way. It's the laying on of hands. I wonder if the expression laying on of hands might mean simply that we believe in interpersonal fellowship in the church. But the point is, this is a basic. So somebody says, what does your religion amount to? What is the sum and substance of what you believe? You say, well, at our church, we believe in baptizing people and shaking people's hands. But, you know, our church believes more than that. But, you know, there are people who that's all they know. Those are the ABCs. You see? Church function. So the first two things he mentions, repentance from dead works and faith toward God, speak of the first steps of discipleship. Baptism, laying on of hands, speak of the basic functions of church life, and then resurrection and final judgment. These are the first principles in this passage. He says we need to leave the first principles and go on to perfection. Now when he says leave these things, he doesn't mean forget about them because they're not important. For have you left the ABCs and 123s that you learned in first grade or kindergarten? I use them every day. I'm using my ABCs this morning while I'm talking to you, while I'm reading from the Word of God. We use our 123s as, as I read my clock. You know, I had to learn my numbers before I could learn how to tell time. But I use ABCs every day that I write, that I read, that I communicate verbally. I use my one, two, threes every day. But my friends, if that was the extent of my knowledge, may I say I wouldn't have accomplished very much in my life. If I stood up before you today and said, brethren, here's what our church service is going to be about this morning. Let's all sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And let's all say some little Christian ditty like uh, grace means God's riches, G-R, at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches. And so we've had church today. You want me to read the Bible, I hope, to explain what it means, to apply it to your life. And here's the thought. As you hear the Word of God on a regular basis, you should be able to not only hear it and agree with it, but you should be learning what it means and learning how to interpret it yourself and learning even how to share it with somebody else that might ask you a question about what you believe. The late elder Sonny Piles used to say this, and I agree with him, it takes a little knowledge to believe something, a little bit more knowledge to explain it, and even more to defend it. It takes a little knowledge to believe it, more knowledge to teach it to somebody else, and even more to defend it when you're challenged. Now, if I were to ask you today, define what we mean by the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Could you do that? Well, you say, Brother Mike, those are big words. I don't. It simply means substitute. Jesus died in my place. He died in the place of all of his elect. Do you know that? You know that Jesus came to die for his people, for those that were given to him by the Father in the covenant before the foundation of the world, and that 
he was our substitute. That is, he took your place. The punishment that was due to you and me was poured upon him. He's our substitute. And the work that he did is credited to you and me. If I were to ask you to define the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, you say, I don't know what imputed righteousness means. It simply means that Jesus was righteous and that what he did in my place has been credited to my account just as surely as if I had gone down to the variety store and had uh, made a payment on your account and you found out you had a credit. And you'd say, where did that come from? Well, Mr. Goins imputed money to your account. He credited it to your account. Jesus Christ has died for his people on the cross and everything that he did has been credited to your account so that you're not charged with your sins, but you are perfectly righteous in the sight of God today. Now, I'm just talking about some of the basics of what we believe. When Jesus died on the cross, did he just make salvation possible? Or did he make it a reality? Did he actually secure salvation? I want all of our church members, young and old alike, to know what primitive Baptists believe, that we believe that Jesus came to save his people from their sins, and he did it. He is a successful savior. He didn't just make a stab at it. He didn't just make it possible for you and me to save ourselves by believing or accepting him, but he actually secured salvation for a definite people, the elect, those that were loved by the Father in the covenant before time began. And when the Holy Spirit comes to quicken one of God's children, he doesn't work through the gospel, through the Bible, or through the preacher or the church, but he does it directly. He does it immediately. That is, without the use of means or media, the Spirit of God will find the children of God, those that Jesus died for, on the cross. He will find them in their lifetime, sometime between conception and death, whether they're behind the bamboo curtain of Asia or the iron curtain of communism or in the darkest jungles of the Amazon, he will find the children of God and bring them into a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. We believe in effectual calling. And we believe that apart from this work of grace, everybody would have been in hell because we're all totally depraved. That is, we're born into this world sinners. We can't save ourselves, we can't save our neighbor, and left in our fallen state, we could not recover ourselves from our state of alienation from God. Now you say, I believe that, Brother Mike, you've preached it, I believe it. It takes a little knowledge to believe something, and I'm glad you believe it. And if you believe it, you ought to unite with the church. You ought to confess Jesus. I believe it. But now, explaining it. Using the scriptures to say, okay, the reason I believe Jesus is a successful Savior is because Matthew one twenty one says, He shall save His people from their sins. He shall. There's no doubt about that. He shall save. And whom is the recipient, the beneficiary of this salvation? His people from their sins. So I use Matthew one twenty one, John 6.37. It won't hurt any of us to find a few scriptures that we could use to explain what we believe and even to communicate that to others and to defend it. And by the way, if you're not able to defend it, some, some smart person captures you at work and says, well, the Bible says that except you be baptized and believe and be baptized. Mark 16, 15. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. Are you going to explain that? You say, well, that kind of threw me for a loop. Remember, you can always go ask your pastor or others in the church to help you if you need to help to defend it. 
but I want you to be sure what you believe. You see, it's important that our people grow up to maturity in our knowledge of the Bible and the things that we hold dear. More than just we believe in preaching about Jesus and shaking people's hands, like my little granddaughter said one time. I asked her, what do you believe at your church? She said, we believe in Jesus and we believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> well, her theology leaves a little bit to be desired, but I appreciate her sincerity. But my beloved, it goes a lot further than that. It goes a lot further than we believe in the Bible, what the preacher preach about today. It's a good question to ask your kids on the way home from church on Sunday. What the preacher preach about today? Uh, about an hour. <laughs> no, what was his subject? Uh, he preached the Bible. Okay, you're on the right track. Hopefully that's true. Hopefully we're not just preaching our opinions or some wild hair idea out here. We're preaching the Word of God. But um, what did he preach about? More than about the Bible, more than about Jesus. He preached about growing spiritually. So kids, I'm helping you. I'm giving you a little clue. If your mom and daddy ask you on the way home today, what did the preacher preach about? He preached about growing up in a spiritual way, being more solid, more mature. Who wants to be a spiritual baby his or her whole life? I don't. I want to grow up. I realize I'm not there yet. Now, spiritual immaturity is not an uncommon problem. The Corinthians even had a problem with this, and Paul could tell it because they were bickering and fussing and fighting with each other. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, brethren, he says, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. You believe there's such a thing as a carnal Christian, a carnal child of God? Now, I know carnality and Christianity are antonyms. They don't mean the same thing, but here's a person that's professed faith in Jesus Christ. They believe in the Lord, they're children of God, but yet... They've let the flesh dominate. That can happen in your life and mine. Did you know when you're born again, when I'm born again, my old nature is not eradicated. It's not removed. It's still there. The old me is still there. The flesh. And it's possible for the flesh to control. And That's happened in my life, and I'm sure you could say it's happened in yours as well. Haven't there been moments when your old you came out? You're Mr. Hyde, you know. The Dr. Jekyll was suppressed. The Mr. Hyde showed his ugly, his true colors. The works of the flesh dominated instead of the fruit of the Spirit. Well, Paul says, I couldn't speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, as unto babes in Christ. He says, for you, whereas there is strife and division among you. Now, this church was jealous and they were bickering and fussing the Corinthians. They were fighting over preachers. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, some said, I'm of Paul, others, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. They had their pet preacher, and they said, this is my man, and I won't listen to anybody else. He's the only one that feeds me. My beloved, it doesn't matter who's doing the preaching. What matters is what is being preached. That's the main thing. The Lord's on display, and uh, God's people that are mature understand that. But you see, when we're not, when we're petty, we begin to form little cliques like children on a playground. He's the most popular boy in the, in the school, so I want to be on his team. She's the most popular girl. I want to be on her team. And we start forming little groups. He says when a church starts acting like that, it's behaving in a very immature way. My beloved, I'm not scolding anybody here this morning. I'm simply saying that spiritual immaturity is something that we need to be concerned about. And spiritual growth should be the priority in our lives. Now, I want to say this as we close this morning. Let's ask the question, why were these Hebrews so underdeveloped? Why had their spiritual growth stymied? 
And the answer is, in verse 11, they were dull of hearing. They had a hearing problem. The word dull means thick, slow, sluggish, lethargic. In a word, lazy. I remember in high school literature class, we were going to study one quarter Shakespeare. And I have to admit to you, I was not the least bit interested in studying Shakespeare. King Lear, Macbeth, Julius Caesar, A Midsummer Night's Dream, none of that interested me in the least. I couldn't understand it, first of all. I mean, he didn't write like uh, Charles Schultz in the Peanuts comic strip that I enjoyed so much. His terminology, his verbiage was so advanced, and I just, I just wasn't interested. So I have to admit to you that for the first week or two of the class, I daydreamed a good bit and didn't uh, pay attention. And finally, when the teacher said, next Monday, when we come back from the weekend, we will have a test on uh, what we've studied thus far in Shakespeare, suddenly I began to panic. And I made one of the poorest grades on that test on that Monday in the whole class. Because the fact is, and it amazed me that my friends and the others in the class seemed to be advanced beyond where I was. And the whole reason that they were beyond me was because I hadn't been listening. I was daydreaming. I was, you know, taking a walk down the park, dreaming that some pretty girl might like me somewhere. I was dull of hearing, and therefore I hadn't grown. I wasn't with the rest of them. May I suggest that how we hear the Word of God, how we listen to preaching, is uh, vitally important. Now, you all are very respectful here today. In fact, this is generally the case. And I know we all have days when we're not at our best. Somebody said, Brother Mike, you're going to have to forgive me. I was resting my eyes this morning. I used to have a lady in the church that would tell me, I wasn't asleep, I was just resting my eyes. I say, well, you sure give a good impression of it. <laughs> but uh, I understand. We all get sleepy sometimes. You know, have you ever gone through a service and your mind has sort of been wandering and you haven't been, you know, you haven't hit the ground running? I used to have an old lawnmower that had to prime the pump a good bit. And then if I do that, then I could pull one time and it'd crank right up. But um, if I didn't prime the pump, I'd pull that cord a dozen times and I'd be sweating and tired. I'd be tired before I started mowing trying to get it cranked because I didn't, you know, we can come to church and we haven't primed the pump. And about the time they sing the last song and the final prayer and say, amen, you say, I'm just starting to warm up. But you've missed it because you didn't hit the ground running. You weren't ready when you got here. I think it's important, my friends, to be careful what our frame of mind is when we come to church. We ought to come ready to hear. You know, like the Bereans, Acts 17, 11, these were more noble than the Thessalonians because they received the word with all readiness of mind. That is, they're eager to hear it. Luke 8, 18 says, take heed how you hear. And that's the whole purpose of the parable of the sower. The wayside hearer, the stony ground hearer, the thorny ground hearer, and the good ground hearer is talking about different hearers to the message. Now, preaching a message is like sowing seed. And you have people at different levels of spiritual development. You know, you have some here who are at the graduate level and some who are at the beginner's level. That's understandable. That's what a healthy church looks like. You're not going to have everybody at the same level. 
You're going to have a nucleus group that are strong and stable and consistent, and then you're going to have a group outside of them that are growing, but they're not quite the core dependable group yet. And then you're going to have some those on the periphery that have a long way to go, but they're showing promise. And you, you hope for, as these in the core pass off the scene, you hope those around them will grow to take responsibility and those on the periphery will move to the next level and you hope new converts will be coming in on the outside. It's a, it's a dynamic, not a static kind of situation. But the point is, dear friends, that even though we're at different levels of experience and maturity, every one of us should be able to glean something if we're listening, if we're ready to hear, if we understand this is God's word, and if we're eager to learn, then we should grow. Because the problem with these Hebrew Christians, again, was that they were dull of hearing. They weren't dead in sin, but they were hearing impaired. And how you hear the word of God, my beloved, is vitally important. It's crucial to your spiritual growth. What this means in a nutshell is that spiritual growth in your life and mine is inseparably connected to a regular and steady diet of God's word. It is impossible to grow without regular exposure to the scriptures. Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night, for he shall be like a tree planted by the river's edge, which brings forth its fruit in its season, and will not see when the heat cometh, when the drought comes. That is, it's planted there right by a water source, its roots run deep, and even when the weather is bad outside, when the heat, the drought comes, it still has its roots deep enough to draw the supplies of refreshment it needs to stay alive and to be vibrant. That's stability. That's strength. That's maturity. And that's what I want for my life. I'm tired of being immature, tossed to and fro, just jumping from one thing to the next. I want to be steady, consistent, stable. I'm tired of allowing the flesh to dominate. I want to be like a rock so that when trouble comes, I'm still the same. I want to be like that vibrant tree whose roots go deep. You know, the most important thing about a tree is not its fruit or its leaves. It's its root system. And when the troubles come in your life, if your roots are deep, my friends, you'll stand the test of time. 1 Peter 2.2 says, As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So parents tell their adolescent children sometimes, wisely, it's time to grow up. It's time to put away childish things and to show some responsibility. There's a reason they spell work W-O-R-K and not F-U-N. <laughs> because it's not always fun, right? It requires a little sweat and toil, but may I say, my beloved, if you'll do what is required, the feelings will catch up with it, and there will be joys and happiness and peace along the way. I miss the carefree days of youth, but I wouldn't go back for the world. I'm getting older, and my time's running. I feel like it's running out, you know. I, some of you are even further down the road than I am, but, you know, we, none of us know what the future holds. But I'd like to have more time, that's for sure. I want to use the time that I have left in a wise way, don't you? It's time to grow up. That's what Paul says to the Hebrews. And if you'll grow up, we can talk about Melchizedek, as he will do in the seventh chapter in greater detail.
Show me the 